The Holy Prophet foretold of a Prophet, one which would be the second coming of Jesus Christ, a Mahdi, a reformer, who would revive Islam and lead it forward into a new era of success. The Holy Prophet requested his companions to convey his salam to this reformer of the new age. He said, When you hear the advent of the Mahdi, then enter into his fold, even if you have to walk on snow by crawling and creeping to reach him. The role and sole purpose of this subordinate prophet was made clear. He would revive Islam, unite all its sects, and establish a caliphate which would strengthen Islam and lead it forward into a new age. I give you the glad tidings of Mahdi, who will be raised in my ummah at a time of digression and distress of people. He will fill the earth with equity and justice as it is filled with oppression and violence. But how could this promised man recognize that he was the one? It could only be through a revelation from God and this revelation was received by the noble and humble Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad in 1891 in a small town of Qadian to the east of Damascus. It is now the duty of every Muslim to come forward and accomplish the appeal of the Holy Prophet to join in to the fold of this Prophet, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad the Reformer, the Mahdi, the Promised Messiah. I call to witness God Almighty who holds my life in His hand that compared to every other soul, He has gifted me with overwhelmingly greater ability and access to the understanding and the deeper wisdom of the Holy Qur'an. If any of the Maulvis who oppose me in response to my repeated invitations had attempted to outshine me in the exposition of the Holy Qur'an, God would have most certainly frustrated his attempts and exposed his ignorance. Hence, the understanding of the Qur'an which has been granted me is a sign of Allah, the Glorious, and I have full trust in Allah's grace that soon the world will begin to see that I am true in this claim.
أشهد أن لا In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful, good afternoon, welcome, assalamu alaikum, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all from Monday afternoon drive time show with myself, Kayum, and as always, joining me is brother, 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 Imran. Brother Imran. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Imran Akram. Uh, I think I need, still Good afternoon. need to introduce. I'm, I'm, I'm still used, I'm getting used to the, the, the new youngsters in the studio. Yeah, no. Good afternoon. Welcome. Peace be on you, brother. Peace be on you. A very nice weather and uh, um, 17 degree almost. And you can uh, you can walk and drive while listening to Voice of Islam Radio. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Some advertising there for me, brother. <laughs> How are you this afternoon? Very well. Already, well. already for, already for the afternoon. Yeah, ready for afternoon. And fingers crossed. Let's see what happens. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Can't say those kind of things. <laughs> God willing, um, mm-hmm. as always, um, yeah. we are here with you with two very interesting topics, two very relevant, up to date, and two topics which affect our everyday lives, and uh, um, not just from. Um, mental or physical perspective but from a financial perspective for the first hour we are going to be talking about the energy crisis um, keeping warm this winter uh, according to a survey of more than 2,000 UK adults found that 23% are planning to keep the heating off this winter um, <clears throat> since uh, I think for the past uh, couple of months um, this has been uh, um, a topic which has uh, um, which has been covered by just about every single um, media outlet, be it social media, be it um, um, mainstream media. And it's been a very decisive um, uh, point um, in respect of politics, um, in not just in this country, but around the world. Yeah. And the figure um, that I am quoting of 23%, it's more likely, it's likely to get higher. Uh, the figure was uh, higher for parents with children under 18, which was at 27%. And about 70% of these adults said that they would keep their heating on for less time. 11% considered taking out a loan to cover the extra energy costs. Um, This figure increases to 17% if the adult had children. You know, we we know that uh, England is known for its its cold winters. So it is is a point which has been, um, which which is not discussed enough. um, and uh, I think uh, it's uh, it's a worrying topic. Um, and today, what we're going to do is try and alleviate some of those worries um, and and talk about what the government has introduced in respect of assistance for people who might be um, who will be not a question of might; it's a question of who will be um, uh, facing challenges this winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, we're going to see if we can uh, and, and discuss some remedies. Um, with regards to the energy crisis and soaring energy prices, His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Masuram, and may Allah strengthen his hand. He said, this is why I have been telling all the time to the people of the world, 
to politicians, to leaders, that they ought to change themselves and try to establish true justice, absolute justice in this world, and discharge their duties to their Creator and their fellow beings. His Holiness has been spoke has has spoken about um, the shortage of gas and electricity and basic utilities. I mean, I recall, I think it was going back uh, 2013. I'm sure um, somebody will call me and correct me, but I think it's 2013 when uh, His Holiness uh, spoke quite extensively on uh, the world, the situation of the world, especially the Western world, where there will be a warlike situation. And warlike situation is exactly what we are living in. We have got war on our doorstep, even though we ourselves are not in a war. Uh, but uh, we are very close to it, and uh, um, you know, if if uh, if things um, are to be looked up on in a, in a serious manner, um, the the national grid has already spoken about how there could be possible blackouts over the winter period, where there was a short, there will be a shortage of uh, of of these essential energy, um, gas, and electric. Where you know we might be experiencing two to three hours. Of, of blackouts um, you know we live in the fifth or the, I think sixth largest economy in the world um, and to think that uh, you know we at one time used to uh, wonder why is it that countries like India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and, <laughs> and the third world um, has uh, you know blackouts or what they normally refer to as load shedding um, it is it, it was inconceivable that countries in within Europe um, would 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 face a similar um, similar kind of challenges. Um, Brother Imran, why is the UK facing such an energy crisis? So the, uh, the price of energy is increasing um, while the UK is facing a cost of living crisis. But um, the, why, the question why is the first sign of uh, energy crisis occurred late um, 2021 when restriction from the UK, from, uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic uh, started to lift. During the pandemic, many people did not drive their cars. Thus, many people were not filling up their cars with uh, petrol as the restriction ease. The demand for fuel increase, um, fuel increased. However, supplier were not prepared for uh, this sudden increase in demand. This led to an increase in price due to the uh, low demand. As demand goes up, price goes up. Uh, viewers um, may have remember this when the public started to panic by and uh, buy fuel um, by filling their cars up as soon as possible. However, um, the Russian uh, the energy crisis has uh, exacerbated when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, which deepened uh, deepens the uh, supply issue and. Uh, Many Western countries, including the UK, banned Russia, uh, Russian coal and oil exports. Imports. Imports, yeah. Imports. And uh, June was the first month on record that the UK did not import any fuel from Russia, which is traditionally one of its major supplier. Therefore, as um, Russia was a major supplier to the UK, there is now a supply issue, again driving up fuel prices. And this has led to an increase in energy bills. And for an, a typical household, one that uses um, 12,000 kilowatt hour of gas a year and, and 
29,000 kilowatt hours of electricity a year means an annual bill will cost him 3,549 pound a year. However, last winter it was 1,277 pound a year. So it's almost double. And it's, yeah. it's, it's nearly treble yeah. <laughs> um, what you were paying last year, but there has been uh, some remedy um, and some help from the government, but we will get back to that later on. Let's go to our first guest of the afternoon. We have with us um, Michael Bradshaw, who is a professor of global energy at Warwick Business School. He works at the interface between economic and political geography, business and management and international relations. He's a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society um, and a past vice president and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum and peace be on you, Professor. Good afternoon. Um, professor, earlier in the year, you wrote an article in the con- in, in the uh, conversation about how fracking is not the answer to soaring gas prices. The government recently lifted the ban on fracking. Why do you think that fracking is not the answer to soaring gas prices? Well, the first thing I'd say is the government didn't have a ban on fracking. It okay. lifted a moratorium, so ban is not, not the right word. Um, so, you know, we've been doing quite a lot of research over the last three or four years looking at the shale industry in the UK, uh, but also looking at what has been happening in North America. I spent some time over in the, in the United States visiting shale gas country. So I, I, it comes down to, to the nature of the shale gas model and that what you have to do to get significant amount of shale gas produced. So I mean, the shale gas process involves you know, drilling wells deep into the shale, shale formations and then drilling horizontally along those, those formations and forcing water down at very high pressure to, to, to create small cracks in the rock. Um, and then you actually send, put sand in, in the water to keep those small cracks open. And then the gas flows back up under uh, uh, where it's rec- recovered. Mm-hmm. But each shale gas well um, produces a lot of gas very quickly, but then it, it starts to decline very quickly. And so to keep production from a shale gas area, you have to keep on drilling. And so in the United States, they talk about drill, baby, drill. So it keeps beeping. You have to drill lots of wells all the time to maintain production. So that means that to develop significant production in the UK, we're not talking about a few wells. We're talking about hundreds of wells a year, thousands of wells in total. If you look at what the industry has been able to achieve to date, it's only drilled and partially fractured three wells um, and triggered two moratoriums. So mm-hmm. the pace of progress is very, very limited. So to, to actually to be able to drill 300 wells a year in the UK seems to me at the moment quite impractical. Um, so it's never really going to gain the pace and scale necessary to make a difference. Now. Based on what you've just said, you you're, you kind of concluded your article um, in a similar way, saying that not more gas supply, but less gas demand. Can you kind of explain why you think that that we need to kind of come off on the reliance of gas more? Natural gas is, is the most important primary energy resource that we use in the UK. You know, we've, we've had a long period of, of moving away from coal quite rapidly. So much so that by the end of next year, we should have in the UK. 
Um, so that leaves gas as the most carbon intensive source of energy in the United Kingdom. So we have a net zero target and we have what we call carbon budgets for various periods of time. So to meet our climate requirements, we will need to decarbonize our energy system, our domestic heat and our industry, which means we will have to stop consuming as much gas and over time reduce significantly the role of ga that gas will play. Now, gas will still play a role, but far more than it is today. You know, so, so we will go, you know, we will need to use or import far less gas. If we accelerate that process, then we don't need to import or produce as much gas as we do today. So accelerating the reduction in gas demand by developing renewable energy, decarbonizing heat through electrification, finding new ways to produce industrial products is the answer, not finding new sources of fossil fuels. Now, the government's decision to remove green levies from the customers' bills. Firstly, could you kind of, for, for the benefit of our listeners, kind of explain the green levy um, um, definition but do you think by doing this UK will be on track to achieve net zero by 2050? Well I'm not actually an expert on, on, on your electricity <laughs> bills but there are various <laughs> levels imposed on the bills that to pay for you know to, to pay for things like supporting um, production of low carbon power electricity wind and solar mm -hmm. um, and also incentivizing improvements in energy efficiency in home so so I'm assuming too when they say removing green levies I mean there, there's an idea that these shouldn't be on electricity they should be on gas gas yeah Professor, I think your phone, the, the, the beeping, it, keeps, it, it kind of takes over your dialogue. We, we can hear your phone beep instead of you. Pressing any buttons, it's not my phone. Oh, okay. We, I think there's someone, there's, there's some, uh, we've got technical a, we've got a technical issue there. Yeah. Um, finally, do you think the government is doing enough to help those who are struggling to pay their bills? I mean, just before you came on, we were, we were about to go on to the £2,500 um, um, energy cap. Do you think that's enough, um, or, or, or people will still be struggling with this cap? Well, what do we mean by the government? It's not the government's money. At the end of the day, it's the taxpayers' money. And I know, agreed. You know, but but so, that's how it's being know. sold. That, that uh, you know that uh, it is the government who has come in and assisted. Well, if we look at what they've come up with so far, so we had 150 pounds paid already through our a, a reduction on count on council tax payments. I think we've got. £400 promised over the winter period, which will come off people's ga gas electricity bills. And then we have the price and the price guarantee, as I think it's now called, which is, is going to, it's not capping what households pay. I think you were discussing this earlier. It's, it's the charges per, you know, per kilowatt hour or whatever for gas and electricity. Those, those charges are capped as, as are the, the uh, standing charges. So that means that the average, this mythical average household will pay £2,500. Hmm. But of course, if you consume more energy, you're going to pay more. And I think the previous discussions were reflecting that yeah. fact. You know, so, so the question is, well, you know, this is, how much this is going to cost is unclear. This is an 18-month commitment, and it depends on how much the gas and electricity prices are going to be estimates ranging between you know, sort of 70, 80 billion to 150 billion. So this is an awful lot of money that has to be paid back over the longer term. So I don't know what more people would expect the government to do. I think it's doing a lot. 
and it's costing a lot. Mm. Um, but I, I think it could be better targeted because not, not everybody needs this help. And there are more households in the UK who need more help. Yeah. But, but you know, giving everyone the same benefit is, I guess, it's easier to do. Um, so at the end of the day, the government is doing a lot. It's costing a lot of money. I, I don't know what more they could be expected to do apart from rank, you know, creating even bigger debt to be paid off in the future. I mean, I agree with you that, uh, you know, it should be uh, it should be targeted. Um, but the government's uh, idea that uh, it's too expensive to uh, to know who to give what amount to. I mean, sh- I mean, we are one of the most developed nations in the world. Should we not be able to do that by now? One would have thought so. And I, I mean, the government's not been very forthcoming on costing any any of the statements. Yeah. They look at the mini budget. That's right. You know, yeah. I'd like to see that the you know the, the how they how they arri- arrive at that uh, calculation. But it, I mean, it does seem to me a rather expensive and blunt instrument to give everybody that benefit. Yeah. Um, but I, but I also the other thing I would say is that actually I don't think at this moment in time you need to make an eighteen month commitment to do that because we are in a very volatile world. There's no doubt about that. You know, the immediate need is for this winter or heating season through to next April May time make that commitment and then 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 see where we are rather than you know writing a, almost a blank check that could be 100 you know 140 billion pounds mm. um reassess where we are come next summer and if we do need to do it again the following winter so be it but but i, I think at the moment you know it, it is it, it is it's they've just gone for what seems to be the easiest approach and may turn out to be you know actually quite expensive um, um finally you are a professor of global energy. I mean, would it be fair for me to say that you would be able to give a comparable between us and other countries around the world who are facing similar crises? Or are they facing similar crises as us? To varying degrees, that everyone is facing a crisis here. There are, there are no winners in the global energy crisis. I mean, the first thing to say is that you know, we, had a, we had a crisis on our hands you know, back last summer as we came out of the pandemic where energy demand was growing more rapidly than supply. So even without the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, we would be looking at a high price environment. But but the problems have been made all the more worse by by what's been happening in Europe in terms of, of the, the, the gas supply into Europe. Mm-hmm. Although, now, although it's a European con- conflict, it has global impacts. There are Know, countries in South Asia who cannot a lot, no longer afford to import the liquefied natural gas they need, countries like Bangladesh and Pakistan, for example, hmm. because Europe is essentially outbidding them. Yeah. You know, it, it's, rel- you know, it's relatively easy for wealthy countries like the UK and Germany. Germany's got, it's spending even more money to actually be spending a lot of money on cushioning co- uh, consumers, but many countries in the world cannot afford that. There are many many countries in in the sort of emerging and developing economies where the government already subsidizes fuel costs, but because of the very high cost of oil and gas, the cost of subsidy is going up all the time, and that's meaning other things can't be paid for. And there are many countries, again, that can't afford anything in the way of intervention. They just have to pass the the higher costs on to households who who can't afford it. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that even coming out of the pandemic before the current crisis, there were people in countries, say, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, the number of people who had access to energy services, modern energy services, was actually going backwards oh, wow. because the cost and availability of energy was, 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 was becoming far too, too expensive and not, no longer available to many households. 
you know, so, I mean, it's kind of a first world problem to be quibbling over the fact that the government is spending all this money yeah. to cap fuel, fuel costs when in, in, in one of the world's wealthier economies. We must understand the situation that people elsewhere in the world now face. Because, it's, it, because I mean, a solution for us here is, will have a knock-on effect on the third world. That's exactly what's happening in the case of, of trying to access, access liquefied natural gas. Hmm. Is a, there's a bidding war going on, and Europe, European consumers and consumers in Asia, in Japan, South Korea, China, are outbidding other countries. Well, Professor Bradshaw, thank you so much, sir, for taking time out this afternoon and coming on to the Drive Time Show. I wish you a fantastic day ahead. Peace be on you, sir. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to... Um, what we quoted um, when His Holiness Azam Azam the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah um, and the head of the Amdi Muslim community when he talked about um, justice uh, and he talked about how countries need to be um, fair in, in uh, distribution of uh, provisions um, and you know it's uh, looking for solutions mm-hmm. for ourselves in the western world um, there are um, you know they have the money, they have the resources uh, to, to, to pay for these provisions, which, um, and they're outbidding uh, the poorer countries. And uh, in effect, uh, if you know, one needs to look at it from a, from a broader perspective, not, not, not just the Western world, if one was to look at it from a global point of view, our solution um, is not, um, it can't be just in any way, shape or form. We need to be thinking about the, the, the less fortunate countries who don't have the provisions uh, to to be able to uh, afford um, the, this energy. Absolutely. I mean, um, um, you talked about, uh, the professor also talked about that, you know, um, the African countries are struggling and uh, um, um, they are, um, although we have a fifth largest economy in the world, but um, we are the one, we are struggling as well, let alone the African countries and, and less developed uh, countries. So I think uh, we should, uh, the world leaders should look into this matter and uh, try to solve and try to uh, look after um, uh, uh, the countries all around the world. So let's have a look at how the government is helping the public. Or, as uh, Professor so rightly said, it is um, not the government's money, it's our money. We are the taxpayers, and uh, this is a, a, a tax burden which probably the next generation is likely to pay. So, in early September, the government created an energy price guarantee which will limit the price that suppliers can charge for each unit of energy. This is very important because a lot of people confused the, the 2,500, including our Prime Minister, who thought that this was the maximum anybody will pay, which is 2500 It's not. A typical household um, who, who have an annual bill um, will not um, rise above 2500 from this month, saving them approximately £1,000. But as we already said, last year they were paying £1,277. Right. So that saving we're talking about is the increase that would have happened of... £3,549. Again, we're talking average. However, mm-hmm. with a household that uses more gas and electric than the typical household, they will pay more than the £2,500. So the 2500 the cap is on the price 
not on the use, not on the not on the units of energy you use. Okay. So the more you use, the more you'll pay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And and this guarantee um, is is uh, going to last for two years. The government can fund this um, and will be funding it by borrowing money, uh, which will add to the pot of the national debt in the United Kingdom. The government has ruled out the use of windfall tax to fund this billion uh, pound freeze to the dismay of the opposition party, and the, almost the opposition parties have have been um, um, have been fairly um, forthcoming in that they would, uh, you know, if they be uh, if they were to get in power, they would um, they, they they would. Um, exercise this windfall tax which has been done so uh, in, in in other countries the windfall tax is a tax on the profits of energy companies but as i said the prime minister ruled out using the windfall tax as she said um at questions in the pmq that uh, um we need to make the uk investable and adding tax will not help companies coming to the united kingdom even though bp um, my understanding allegedly is that uh, BP said that this wouldn't make any difference because it would still uh, um, because it would not um, assist them or um, it would not be an incentive um, enough for them to invest in the UK or further investment in the United Kingdom. And, you know, this comes after it was found in August that United Kingdom gas producers and electricity generators could see up to 170 billion pounds of excess profit over the next two years and oh. that's 170 billion pound of excess profit mm-hmm. over the next two years but the prime minister has continued to rule out these taxes whilst the most vulnerable are finding it hard to keep this uh, winter um, or keep warm in this winter and um, you know again it goes back to what his holiness said you know every time we we speak of this topic every time we raise um, uh, an issue and to be honest it's not about uh, who's in power um, it, it is about the policy uh, and the policy is unfair the policy is unjust the policy does affect the poor and we've already heard from from the professor that even the solution that we make for this country um, is going to be might not be um, you know we might think that we're finding a solution for the poor of this nation but we are most definitely um not uh, we're, we're um, exacerbating the problem for less fortunate countries in 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 Asia and in Africa. Yeah. Uh, if you, if if uh, let me, uh, I would just like to you know um, give the Islamic perspective on how should be government taxing uh, to the people, and uh, Islam emphasizes that everyone should be burdened according to his ability. It say it state in the Holy Quran, "La yukallifu Allahu nafsan illa that Allah um, Allah bur- burden not any soul beyond his capacity, and uh, I think the go- the government should also look this um, this uh, rule that it should not burden anyone beyond his capacity. And for this reason, Islam has also defined uh, this principle in the matter of zakat. And the zakat is you pay the um, you pay basically um, investment. You can say. To your annual income, which is uh, like 2.5 percent of your annual income, and for this reason, um, so you can um, see the same principle in the matter of zakat. That is, it is taken from the rich people and given to the poor people, rather than having a no burden on someone or some burden on the rich and burdening the pu- burdening the poor with the more taxes, who's already struggling. So I think this is the 
um, you can look uh, to through Islamic perspective. You can you can look in that way. So zakat is is uh, is due on earned income in the form of salaries or wages. Yes. Right. So whatever you earn on an annual basis, you will paying two and a half percent. Yeah. So it's your annual gathering, not on on your you know whatever you gather. So for example, if you have uh, f- let's say ten thousand pound. And, um, and if you have less than ten thousand pound, you don't have to pay the cut. But if you have a ten thousand um, pound, uh, which is your savings, then you have to pay the cut. So um, apart from that, you don't have to pay the cut. So, so on savings, you're paying, but, yeah. but not on earned income. Yeah, no. So basically, um, if let's say if I earn. Um, um, let's say you earn twenty thousand pounds. Twenty thousand pounds, but my saving is less than, for, uh, let's say, nine thousand pounds. Okay. Then I don't have to pay the cut. And if my savings are ten thousand pounds, so then I have to pay the cut. And it's on only the ten thousand you have saved. T- yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay, just for just for the benefit of the listener, so so you're paying. Uh, Islam says you got to pay two and a half percent on your savings. Right. And you got to pay any two and a half percent or any unused assets you have. Within that one year, so yeah. you know, gold, um, so um, were, cash, sitting yeah. in your in your in your in your yeah. um, um, you know in your banks, um, investments that you haven't utilized in over over a year. Yeah, so anything which is sitting redundant, right. hoarding of wealth. One of the reasons why this this um, the the this levy that that is is there is to avoid. Hoarding of wealth, which is what happens in this world at the yeah, moment. Absolutely, people kind of hoard wealth yeah. and do nothing. Whereas Islam promotes investment, yeah. which is why I say a lot of people look upon zakat as an expense, or they look upon it as a tax when it's not. It's an investment. Right. Um, you know, it's an investment where I can assure you, the Holy Quran has 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 explained it, and and the teachings of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has all have have the teachings also clearly say that. That the the reward and the mm-hmm. benefit mm-hmm. of of uh, of this uh, of this investment you make um, is not only in this life but for the he- in the life of the hereafter as well. Right. Um, so you know it, it is it, it would be unfair to refer to it as a tax mm-hmm. um, or or an expense. Kayum, so, uh, we just talk about the windfall tax. Mm-hmm. Don't you think it's it's uh, it's it's not you know um, it's not a benefit benefit for the poor. Because they are all um, the taxes burdening the poor people. Poor, in a sense, they're not you know um, wealthy um, people. And windfall tax is um, there for you know uh, companies who earn multi-billion to- pounds mm-hmm. per year. But the government is decided not to you know tax uh, those company companies and just to uh, tax on the normal layman. And uh, yeah. The the reason why the reason given by the government for not uh, not going forward with the windfall tax on these companies is because the agenda for this government has been economic growth, right? And it, and they want to get the message across that if they were to tax these multi-billion uh, pound companies, multinational, international organisations, that if they were taxed in this way, then it will stop them investing in the country. Mm-hmm. 
that is the reason that has been given. But I do agree with you. Yes, the the uh, because what people seem not to understand is that these companies make profits anyway, but they have been profiteering in addition to their normal profits um, that they normally make. Hence why we went back to um, when we talked about how these companies have seen up to 170 billion pounds of excess profit, not normal profits, excess profits. Um, So, you know, you're correct in saying that... uh, um, it doesn't benefit the people, but it, it's it's it needs to be explained properly why the government is doing this. Whether you agree with it or not agree with it is 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 a, is a political argument. Um, but but I think um, if you look uh, towards those companies who are earning a multi-billion pound per year, uh, when they earn these uh, that kind of money, they don't include the layman into into you know into that money. But when they lose lose or somehow lost their, you know, um, money, then they just burden on the layman. Don't you think so? It, but then that's the that's the nature of the government. This is what I'm saying. It's it depends on who's in power. What you're talking about is is in an altruistic perspective where you know it uh, these policies need to be looked upon, um, you know, just from the just from the poor perspective, whereas. If 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 uh, somebody who maybe has wealth would turn around and say to you, "Well, I understand where you're coming from, but just because I have wealth, does that mean I have to automatically play more?" Mm-hmm. The answer would be yes, but they but but you know they would have an argument that it needs to be balanced and fair, where the taxation needs to be applicable across the board. Right. But again, it's it's an argument to be had. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to in Islam. Um, it is. It is. It's been made clear. Um, it's been made abundantly clear in the in the Holy Quran that God is the one who has blessed people with their wealth. Whatever, whatever blessings or whatever rewards that they have received in this life, it is God who has blessed them with that. Right. Hence, why the poor people have a right. There is a percentage where poor people have a right on that wealth. Yeah. So you're saying it's not. Basically, a rich man money. Mm-hmm. So it's their right. It is their Allah, right, but, Allah, but yeah. it's it's a right which is up to the individual who is who earned that money yeah, yeah. to give it. You mm-hmm. can't snatch it. It's not a question of yeah. of stealing. Yeah. It is a question of re- people um, who do have wealth and who have the the capacity to to spend more and give more. They should give more, but it mm-hmm. should be a choice. But let's go on to our next guest of the afternoon. We have with us uh, Peter Smith, who is the Director of Policy at National Energy Action, which is a charity looking to end fuel poverty. Good afternoon. Um and peace be on you, Peter. How are you? Good this afternoon. Thanks very much. Good, good, good to be with you. Thank you for taking time out and coming on board with us. Um, Peter, how does the National Energy Action help those people who are suffering from fuel poverty um, and and uh, you know especially this this winter this um, you know very concerning times at the moment. Well, as well as being a charity that tries to ensure that all households across the UK can live in a warm and safe home uh, by campaigning, we also provide practical support to to boost people's incomes or provide them with energy advice and or in many ways address um, some of the debt problems that households find themselves in. As you say, particularly at the moment, given the energy crisis. So. Taking into account the energy crisis, why has the Prime Minister, I mean, we were just discussing this, I was just talking to Imran about it, um, why 
not charge the windfall taxes on these energy companies? Well, I, I think the government have taken uh, probably a political decision uh, on that front. Mm. Um, what matters to us is not the sort of means by which you pay for something, but what, what you actually do uh, do to support people. And although we welcome the commitment to keep uh, bills frozen lower than they would have otherwise been, first of all, the, um, the price freeze isn't a, fr- a freeze at all. Uh, if you pay, if you use a lot of energy, you're going to pay more than £2,500. It's really important that people understand that it isn't a hard limit on your energy use. And, and for millions of people, £2,500 is still completely unaffordable. And it millions is. of people are going to be struggling this winter. Well, it's not really a saving, is it? I mean, because last year's average was one thousand, just under 1300 That's right. Uh, we think that uh, broadly energy prices have almost doubled uh, since last year. And um, despite, you know, there, there being support available... There are many gaps in provision, and we know that many low-income and vulnerable households aren't going to have the confidence to heat their homes this winter with the consequences that go with that, not just for those individuals, but also the strain that that puts on public health agencies and, you know, our hospital staff. So do you think that the government is doing enough to combat the energy crisis? I, I think there's definitely room for further targeted support for the most vulnerable people, either by taking further money off people's bills or by putting money back into people's pockets. It's really important, that, as well as those short-term fixes, that we look at the longer-term drivers of this, uh, this crisis. And we've been much more exposed to this, um, this, this energy crisis because of the inefficiency of our homes. And, um, and we use far more energy than is necessary. And we would like to see the government look longer term at trying to uh, do more in that area as well. Now, in, in, in recent days, I think the government has, uh, has uh, kind of gone back on, on the... The, the marketing campaign of awareness um, on on uh, for for there was a national strategy that was going to be um, raising awareness of how they can how people can save uh, energy in these times and they've gone back on and they said that uh, um, it's not needed. What's your take on on uh, on the government's decision to kind of claw back on what they had initially said they would do? Well, again, I think it's probably a case of uh, that's a political choice by this government. Uh, I think the um, the need to get basic information out there to, to make, make sensible changes to people's behaviours in order to save energy is a very sensible thing to be doing at the present time. Reportedly, it was shelved because of the cost to um, to taxpayers, presumably, of, of, of that initiative. But it's a, it would have been a drop in the ocean compared to the overall total price of their price freeze, which... Um, I think you know it's coming in at about sixty billion pounds. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that the the total campaign was about seventy million. Yeah, so um, yeah, very <laughs> insignificant in comparison to the overall cost of losing uh, people's energy costs. It was a strange decision. It would make one think that uh, they don't want people to know <laughs> what's available out there. Um, l- following on from um, from the from this, uh, uh, you know, the help or the so-called help that the government is doing. What do you believe? Um, would be the best solutions in combating the energy crisis? Well, I think in the short term, we do need to see that further targeted support. So I think more money off people's bills or money back into people's pockets through looking at the welfare system. But um, Um, we also need to recognise the need to uh, support households that are living on low incomes but aren't on means-tested benefits. And there's lots of low-income households that would never claim benefits um, but can be supported um, 
in different in different ways. There is a bit of the way um, of taking further money off people's energy bills through adopting something that we've been calling for, which is a, a mandatory uh, price a social um, social tariff. Um, and then, as I said, longer term, we've definitely got to look more at doing stuff on energy efficiency, given the amount of energy that we waste in our homes. Um, Peter, you, you, um, I was uh, talking to Professor Bradshaw earlier and uh, we were discussing this idea that the, uh, this assistance has been kind of blanket across the board. Um, did the, does the government have enough um, provision or statistics or data to be able to target the people who actually really need the assistance that they are putting out? I mean, you mentioned universal credit, that we know yeah. who pensioners are. So we could have done something a little bit better, couldn't we? Well, I think, you know, if you look at the to- uh, the package that was put together in May by the then Chancellor, that was a more targeted package. But you're right, it was reliant on using means-tested benefits as, hmm. the, as the major proxy. Uh, so it's important to recognise that energy suppliers have got a huge amount of information about their customers. Um, they can um, understand which customers are in severe debt, which customers are, are likely to be using medical equipment in their home to keep warm. Um, and, and a range of information which could be used for targeting purposes. Um, but at the moment, we're not making enough of, um, enough of that, that data. I mean, so, HMRC uh, would know who's paying how much, uh, yeah, how much well, their income, how, how much income they've got, and, and, you know, at least create some kind of scale. Yeah, it's, um, the, 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 there are uh, practical challenges in, in terms of uh, completely relying on HMRC data, but I completely, completely agree with you. The data's out there. It's about the will to to provide the most help to the people that have got the greatest need. So, how important is it for the UK to transition to non-renewable forms of, of, of energy? And, how, and you know, this, this, this reliance we have on gas and electric, um, you know, what, what's, the, what's the alternative? How ready well, are we? As, a, as I mentioned in my earlier remarks, we're far more exposed to this energy crisis due to the inefficiency of our homes that we use far more energy than is necessary. Mm. As well as, sa- as saving money, you're absolutely right that the transition to net zero um, and putting us on a path for, for much cleaner ways of producing and consuming energy in our homes looks like common sense at the, at the, at the moment. It's becoming much more economical uh, every time energy prices increase. Finally, Peter, could you kind of for our listeners any tips that they can use on i mean you know we always talk about the government we talk about organizations we talk about so many different people but as individuals we have a responsibility as well and there are certain things we can do ourselves and you so rightly already says we already kind of use more than what we need what what yeah. uh, what can people do um, as individuals to ensure that uh, you know that, that they are also helping in the equation of helping themselves and 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 using less energy well i think if um first thing to say is that as the, the weather gets colder if people are in a position to check on neighbors or relatives who they ha- are worried about particularly with medical health conditions which could be made badly worse by living in a cold home it's not just affordability that often puts people um off supply and and can leave them in the cold or the dark and so it is about keeping in touch with neighbors and uh, and relatives to make sure that they get through the winter period beyond that we'd say seek out the support that has been made available so if you're worried that you're getting into um a difficulty to your energy bill we'd urge you to contact your energy supplier and they may be able to help you um put you on a, re- uh, a repayment plan which doesn't charge any interest which is that your own um, uh, doesn't stretch your own means wonderful 
Peter, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show this afternoon. I wish you a fantastic day ahead. Peace be with you. Thank you, and to you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Um, some sound advice there by yeah. Peter. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it is important to understand, and I think some very important points, especially by uh, b- made by Peter, about looking out for your neighbours and, and the elderly, uh, and which, which perfectly falls in line uh, with the teachings of Islam. Absolutely. That, uh, you know, at times like this, we need to start, you know, as a norm, we need mm-hmm. to look beyond ourselves. It is our, um, it's our responsibility to make sure that the vulnerable in society and our neighbours and our, and our elders and, our, and the people who have uh, disabilities that we know of, or even if we're not aw- know of, we are aware of within, within our vicinities, be it at work, be it at home, be it within our friends, be it within our social circles, it is our responsibility to make sure that they are catered for um, in, the, in the correct manner. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, um, prof- and the, um, the Peter Smith, uh, you questioned him about the renewable energy I think government um the UK has one of the uh, one of the largest wind energy resources in the Europe and uh, especially onshore uh, windmills I think uh, government really needs to focus on that because uh, they are more cheaper and in that way you can you can uh, um basically um come over this energy crisis and uh, for example Germany is ahead of us um Germany has always been ahead of us yeah <laughs> and uh, um um the fact is that Germany is not less windier than the UK and still they are ahead of us and uh, their planning is uh, to go just um on 2013 to go just zero carbon um net and uh, i think just government need to focus on the um the renewable resources and just leave these gas and coal and um uh, relying on the petrol diesel. i think the only focus the government has at the moment is to see if they can stay in power. <laughs> um, everything else comes second. So, is the government doing enough? So, the Liberal Democrat um, have commissioned the survey and the Liberal Democrat spokesman for the Cabinet Office, Christine Jardine, said, it is a national scandal that parents are having to choose between heating their homes and feeding their children. It shouldn't be like this. The leader of the Liberal Democrats, uh, Sir Ed Davey, said that this will, uh, this will still leave struggling families and pensioners facing impossible choices this winter as energy bills almost double. Um, as last winter's cap was 1277 for the average household, as we discussed earlier. The Labour Party has put pressure on the Conservative Party, currently in government, to tighten the existing windfall tax. Again, we discussed it earlier that uh, should Labour come in power, they have said that they would go ahead with the windfall tax. Mm-hmm. So energy companies cannot claim tax relief on more than 90% of the levy if the money is reinvested. So Keir Starmer, Labour leader, said that the refusal to fund the scheme with a windfall tax was disappointing, as it's working people who will pay for that. The borrowing of billions will mean that tax could potentially increase in the future or spending in government departments to decrease, which could have an impact on the NHS, housing, poverty rates, etc. This goes back to where the government has put out and and looked to find a solution by borrowing all this money, but they Mm -hmm. haven't said where the money is going to come from or how this money is going to be paid back, which is one of the reasons why there was such turmoil, turmoil in the city. And, you know, as we were listening in the news where, you know, two, two and a half percent rates increases have gone up to maybe what well, it's gone up to six point three percent because the city was uh, was jittery because normally they rely on the government to make policies mm-hmm. um, which kind of make sense, are reasonable, are rational. And a plan is presented as to how they are going to pay for everything. And this was not the case this time. Yeah. 
which is why interest rates have gone up. And in the eyes of the public, um, the Conservative Party has been the responsible for this increase in um in in the interest rates and the and the borrowing of billions will mean that tax could potentially increase in the future or spending in the government departments to decrease which could have an impact on the nhs as i said meaning that the government will look to even cut further the funding they give to all the necessary departments like education mm-hmm. like nhs which is already on its knees and it will be even further on its knees right. many have raised concern over uh, over um, the, this issue of fracking, as it, it's not clear what difference uh, what difference restoring fracking will make to UK energy bills. But when we spoke to um, Professor Michael Bradshaw, he kind of gave a very clear, concise reasoning as to why it does not make sense. The British Geological Survey, which carried out the government review in 2019, found that the UK's geology and depth made it unlikely to recover enough gas and oil to even meet five years' worth of demand. So, you know, our guests have kind of made it uh, kind of uh, kind of clarified some of these questions a lot of people have, especially about fracking um, and, and about um, energy use, about some of the caps that the government has has has, has introduced. Um, and in reality, um, people are not saving um, compared to last year, but they are still paying mm-hmm. double the amount that they were paying last year. Right. But the saving is is the saving that they would have made or, or they are making um, had a cap not been introduced. If the cap mm-hmm. wasn't introduced, people would have been paying three and a half, four thousand pounds a year right. on their energy bills. But because the cap was introduced, um, and again, the cap is on the price of the unit, not on the number of units. The more you use, the more you will pay. So there is a chance that you could possibly go over the, the 2,500 pound. Now, you sound like the kind of person who's into energy and, and whatnot. So is the UK looking for a long-term energy supply? Man, so it's not, it's yes. Silence is, you know, silence on radio is is just, is, is, is a no-no. So although the government is trying to help the most vulnerable, within the society um, who will be most affected in the long term, they will be uh, negatively affected too. And uh, this this is due to the government decision to rule out the idea of uh, using windfall tax to fund the scheme. Therefore, as the government is borrowing, which, is, um, which uh, in a couple of years may have to be uh, uh, repaid in the form of higher taxes or less spending or both or both uh, may have uh, affected the most vulnerable in society. I think, so you, um, the thing is, they are giving um, to one hand and taking through the other hand. But but I'm talking about, you know, United Kingdom looking for a long-term energy supply solution. So, um, you know. I think the long-term energy um, solution is to go green, and to, as I talked before, that we need to be more focused on the solar and uh, uh, wind, um, uh, wind, uh, you know, windmills. Uh, through windmills, we can create energy, um, but uh, we have to we have to be not relying on these um, uh, these on coal and gas things. His Holiness Azim Isamasuram, the fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah and the worldwide head of the Amni Muslim community, may Allah strengthen his hand. 
He said now as the economic state of the world worsens and people's financial condition becomes strained, some people may think that they should focus on their own needs and tighten their given hands. In such circumstances, we should remember those in greater need than us and help and support them as much as possible. Thus, this highlights that no matter what situation we may be in, we should always contribute to charity, even if it is a small amount, to help those who are in a much harder situation than us. You are listening to The Draft Time Show with myself, Kayum, and Brother Imran. We have been talking about the energy crisis and how we're going to be keeping warm this winter. We're going to go take a quick break and go to the news. Uh, when we come back, we're going to go on to our second topic of the afternoon, which is fitness results or excuses. We're going to be talking to you of the experts who will shed some light on this topic. And we're going to see how uh, and why fitness um, is also a very important part of Islam and the Islamic way of life. So do stay tuned. Um, grab yourself a cup of coffee um, and uh, listen to our messages and join us after the breaks and the news break. Use your senses to find God. God must be found. Use your ears to hear his sound. Look up, look down, the sky, the ground. Look left, look right, look all around. God is with us wherever we look. He gave us the answers in the perfect book. So recite in the name of thy Lord who created. For your obedience he has patiently waited. See, God is with you everywhere. The bed, the stairs, the floor, the chair. Don't be disobedient. Please take care. He hears and sees all. Don't forget he's there. So next time you think about committing sin, just remember... You're letting the devil in. This life is not just about worldly pleasure. The hereafter is where you'll find real treasure. So use your senses and use your sense. Ignorance is not a valid defence. of Islam Radio. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. It should be remembered that God Almighty, by demanding faith in the unseen, does not wish to deprive the believers of certainty of understanding the divine. Indeed, faith is a ladder for arriving at the certainty of understanding, without which it is vain to seek true understanding. Those who climb this ladder surely experience for themselves the pure and undefiled spiritual verities 
when a sincere believer accepts divine commands and directions for the only reason that God Almighty has bestowed upon him through a righteous bearer, he becomes deserving of the bounty of understanding. That is why God Almighty has established a law for his servants that they should first acknowledge him by believing in the unseen so that all the problems they face may be resolved through the bounty of true understanding. But it is a pity that a hasty one does not adopt these ways. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, a new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion, and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. Welcome back to Monday afternoon drive time show with myself, Gayoub, and Brother Imran. We're going to go on to our next topic of the afternoon, which is fitness. Um, results or excuses? If you want to contribute, give us a call 0208 687 uh, You can join us on our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK. Um, no matter your age, the secret to a long, active and fulfilling life is maintaining good health and fitness. The promised Messiah, the head of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mizda Ghulam Ahmed, on whom be peace, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, once stated, it should be understood that according to the Holy Quran, the natural state of man is intimately related to his moral and spiritual natural, uh, to his moral and spiritual states. So much so that even his eating and drinking habits affect his moral and spiritual states. Further stating, that is why the Holy Quran emphasizes the physical cleanliness and physical moderation for prayers, inner cleanliness and devotions. After careful consideration, one concludes that this is the true philosophy and the physical organs that have great effect on the soul. This is from uh, um, a, a recommended book, Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, pages 18 and 19. You can actually access this book from alislam.org if you go into the library section. It is a must-read. I would urge anyone to, um, if you haven't read it, um, please do. It's called, again, Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, pages 18 and 19 it it will open it will blow your mind um, if you read this book um health and fitness myths originating from obscure research or the advice of a popular doctor at the time have affected consumer choices for decades most of this common thinking which is accepted as a fact has been refuted by science today or this afternoon we're going to be debunking some of these myths 
discussing how fitness benefits not only physical but also mental health. And finally, one of the five pillars of Islam, fasting alongside its benefits. So, Imran, what are some of the, the common myths um, that uh, what uh, I'm talking about here? Yeah, so some... Some um, beneficial change have uh, uh, have resulted from the experience of uh, wellness as a mainstream trend, including um, healthier menu options at popular restaurants and inflow of luxury health clubs and a revival in self-care. But the growing interest in our health has also made it easier for um, unreliable information to spread, particularly about diet and exercise. It can be challenging to um, separate fact from fiction when it comes to exercise because uh, there is so much uh, conflicting uh, conflicting information out there. And sadly, uh, hearing is um, believing for a lot of us. For example, the idea that lifting heavy weights will result in a bulkier physique is a widespread myth, particularly among women. It is true that Heavy lifting um, encourages muscle hypertrophy, um, which results in an increase, which results in an increase in size. However, it's false that it it results in a bulky appearance. Fat buildup is the real cause of bulkier physique. Both men and women uh, who have too much body fat appear bulky. The percentage of body fat that a person has in the most significant uh, physical characteristic. A somewhat low, uh, a somewhat low body fat percentage is almost always necessary to have a good physique. Uh, lifting a lot of weight can assess this. Now, one of the um, one of the myths which I used to believe is that you know you can focus uh, on one part of your body, for example, um, your uh, your legs or your belly. And uh, I came to know a couple of years back, a couple couple of um, years ago, that uh, it is not true. You have to be work. um, You have to work um, on all of your body uh, in order to uh, in order to um, become lean. So that that was my myth. Yeah. Do you like sport? Very much. Which which sport do you like? Um, I like cricket and all. I said sport. Sport, <laughs> good one, but yeah. Uh, just joking. I I enjoy cricket as well. Yeah. But, but I enjoy yeah. cricket and I like all um, racket sports, especially um, badminton and um, table tennis or um, squash. Yes. What about tennis? Tennis. Um, I've played tennis like f- for maybe maybe for like ten days, but it's not for me. I think now Jamia, which is the Institute of Theology and uh, and Modern Languages, where you attended, mm-hmm. um, sports is a very and fitness is a very important part of uh, your time. The seven years you spend at the institute, sports is very part and parcel of uh, of of the studies you do there, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, um, in Jamia. The university which uh, where I studied, um, it is an essential um, um, must do thing in our timetable, and uh, we also uh, get the inspiration from uh, from our holy masterpiece and blessing of Allah be upon him, uh, the holy prophet, and uh, there was a saying uh, from him that al mu'minul kaviyu khairun wa min al mu'min al wa fi kulli khair. 
that the strong believer is better and more beloved to Allah than the weak one, while there is still goodness in both. So we have these the, these kind of motto there in the university to you know to excel in physical fitness. And now the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who we you know all Muslims believe him to be, you know the the perfect person, the the, the human being who lived a, an ideal, the most ideal lifestyle. He often practiced physical exertion in many. Um, in different forms. He routinely rode horses and camels in addition to staying physically active. It is even reported that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, accepted the challenge to wrestle from a well-known Meccan wrestler and defeated him twice. His wife, Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, and, and he uh, would compete in races. Um, he declared that we are even now after one race in which she prevailed and he won. In many ways, we should use the lives of the prophets um, as a guideline for our own lives and follow in their footsteps in such manners. I mean, if one was to go back um, and, you know, in, in, in uh, you know, thousands of uh, thousands of years ago, um, most prophets used to walk everywhere. Um, you know, the, the, the means of transportations were horses or camels or donkeys or mules, um, yet um, you know, if if uh, one was to read about all the all the prophets and and how they lived their lives and how they spread the message and how they developed communities, it was all um, um, you know physical exertion and f- and and the use of the body itself was a main part of how they lived their lives. Absolutely, I mean ju- the 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 saying which I've just quoted um, that strong believer is better than uh, better and more beloved in in the eyes of Allah than the weak believer while there is still goodness in both and the reason why he said that and this is one of the interpretation of this hadith that if you're strong mentally and physically then you can perform the duty towards your creator and the creation in a better way and and it is for this reason the the holy master peace and blessings of Allah be upon him encourages his, his companion to take part in sports which which make you physically and mentally strong like uh, swimming and archery and horse riding and uh, uh, he also used to attend competitions to encourage his companions to excel in physical fitness so the, the role model is there for us uh, we just need to practice it so we're talking about fitness of course you can't talk about fitness and not mention diet so what's your what's your what's your breakfast my breakfast usually uh, the um, very typical one uh, very typical uh, Pakistani breakfast which is um, a normal um, you can say uh, bread you, roti or paratha which we call uh, in Urdu uh, and uh, fried eggs and uh, yeah cup of tea yeah, that's so it oil and tea <laughs> yeah. that's your breakfast <laughs> yeah but I had I, I, I almost um, uh, do sports every day try to and uh, so almost I, try uh, to but you said the word every day <laughs> So, which one is it? <laughs> so, um, you can so, so, every other day. You every mean. other day. Okay, every that. other day. Yes. So, another health myth which may many swear by is the notion that calorie deficits are all a matter in relation to weight loss. But instead of me and Imran talking about it, let's go and listen and talk to um, Tahira Bashir, who is a specialist registered dietitian and British um, dia. Dietetic Association's spokesperson. She has 20 plus years experience working with the public and private sector, including NHS clinical hospital practice and primary care, specializing in diabetes, obesity and related chronic conditions and diet and health of South 
Asian groups. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamualaikum and peace be on you, Tahir. and thank you for inviting me today. Thank yep. you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time show. So, Tahira, what is the, the, the relationship between um, the, the calories and, uh, and weight loss? Um, at the end of the day, basically, it's important to get a balance. You can't just uh, give a sort of general figure for everybody. Of course, with the population, you have to take into consideration uh, with regards to somebody's age, activity, um, what their uh, energy requirements are, um, as to then thinking about how many calories they may need and what those calories are really made up of. That's the important thing at the end of the day. Um, of thinking of how do you make up these calories? Are they made up from unhealthy choices, such as lots of fat and sugar, or are they made up of more, um, you know, substantial nutritional choices, such as, you know, from fruit and vegetables, where you get lots of vitamins and minerals. Um, And with regards to weight loss, at the end of the day, it's thinking about, again, um, how much activity is someone doing in accordance to how much energy and food calories they're taking in. So if you, for instance, are having a day where you're quite sedentary, you don't do very much movement, you're not very active, then you're not really requiring, you're not needing as many calories in your diet that day. But if it's a day where you're very active, you're doing a lot of walking, you may be going out and doing some sort of fitness activity, um, then you can get away with having you know, a few more calories um, added on to your daily intake. And when it comes to weight loss, I think it's it's a very individual thing and it's important that you get some uh, professional advice with regards to that so you can take into consideration one's individual health circumstances as well. But it would be about looking at um, what your general requirements are and then maybe reducing it by a certain number of calories um, in a healthy way in order to ensure that you still get a full nutritional dietary intake um, but you're reducing, you're not needing so many calories that will then for assist with helping to lose a little bit of weight. And also you have to think about what is the reason why you're wanting to lose weight? Is it due to health reasons? Have you been advised by your doctor, nurse or a health professional that it's important you lose weight? As we know that, you know, if those that um, do have ex- excess weight, maybe are overweight or obese, there are certain chronic conditions that are linked with that, especially within certain uh, communities, such as the South Asian community, Black African Caribbean community, such as diabetes and heart disease. So you might have got advised by your doctor or nurse to, to say that, you know, it would be beneficial if you were to lose a little bit of weight and then you get advised in accordance to that to think, okay, what can I reduce? No. Or is it a personal thing of you just wanting to lose weight? And and then we look at things in a different way. Um, Dara, you mentioned the the South Asian diet, and I was just making fun of my young uh, colleague here who had a breakfast of prata and and a couple of fried eggs with a, you know, with a with a milk infused tea, which is a yes. which is a normal um, Asian breakfast. But it's an Asian breakfast which you kind of or, or I would say, well, yeah, in, if you're in Pakistan or if you're in India or if you're in Sri Lanka. You have a lifestyle and a climate where that kind of breakfast works. Is that a wrong? Is that a myth that I believe in, or is it an un- unhealthy breakfast that he's having? 
You've said exactly correct. I think, you know, whether it's back in homeland of Pakistan or even maybe many years ago where people's jobs were more laborious and you were, again, more active, you could get away with having your burrata and fried eggs because mm. you were using that energy and calories. Um, so, of course, yes. What we The general advice would be now is for something like that is maybe as an occasional treat. You know, you may want to have the, you know, a burrata and egg for breakfast. But really on a daily intake, you want to try and think about more um, healthier alternatives like high fiber cereals. Um, talking about, you know, toast, bread, going for those that are more granary with seeds, nuts, etc. Um, and it's just all, you know, rather than having a burrata, maybe even a plain roti chapati is what you would look at. So you're reducing the fat intake um, and then maybe making a poached egg. So it's thinking of healthier ways of cooking that uh, by reducing the fat intake, but you could still enjoy that staple food. Excellent. Now, Again, please clarify one myth for me. What's the problem with white bread? There's no problem as such with white bread. Um, it's you know it's Be- still because again, that's a, it's a South Asian thing. It has to be white bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, with white bread, it's a carbohydrate source. So you know, it's a good energy source. The thing about white bread is it's the way that it's processed and made. So the, basically the carbohydrate, when it breaks down into these glucose sort of into smaller sort of molecules as such to give you that energy, it breaks down at a quicker rate. So therefore that energy release is a lot quicker. It doesn't get sustained for a, such a long period of time. So for example, if you've got diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes, we try to uh, encourage and advise that you know, those people try and include foods where the carbohydrate breaks down more slowly so that the body is able to regulate and cope with it better. But even if you haven't got diabetes, the reason why we try and encourage brown bread, more granary bread, is again, because the digestion process, basically it breaks down more slowly, you digest it more slowly, it makes you feel full up for a lot longer. So therefore you're less likely wanting to need a snack. If you're needing to reduce your portion sizes, if you were to have a medium slice of granary seeded bread you'd that would probably you would feel a lot fuller on that than probably having two slices of white bread so again it's a very subtle way of reducing your portion size but also giving you that fullness feeling as well and it's healthy with the fiber which helps with your digestion wonderful um now in the days and the times that we're living in of social media mainstream media magazines and whatnot Every publication or every um, um, platform has their own specialists on on what is the best diet, be it keto, paleo. I mean, there's an alphabet of diets. What's your opinion on these diets and how should people decide what diet is the right one for them? And is there a diet which is very specific to the individual or is there one which everyone can follow, which is based on common sense instead of? companies who promote these things yeah well i mean a lot of these diets as you correctly said there's a lot of diets out there and i think it's really important that before actually thinking about trialing or going on these diets again i cannot emphasize enough and i know that it's still on all these social media that there is always a small print that will say in, on these sites of you know get professional 
um, you know, help first of, of checking whether this is suitable for you. So they cover um, for the fact that and that is really important. Before trialling any diet, I think it's always important that you speak with your GP nurse. You can get referred to see a dietitian, a registered dietitian, and get further advice. The thing about all these diets, they're generally known as fad diets, and they're quick fix sort of like diets that might often they consist of um, putting out specific food groups and then just focusing on maybe one or two food groups. I mean, like the keto diet that you've mentioned, that really focuses on, you know, cutting or reducing uh, quite significantly carbohydrates from your diet, which is a, a excellent energy source and really focusing on protein foods so a lot of people might have a lot more meat etc now the thing around that is that you're then losing out on essential nutrients that you would get from carbohydrate and you may be getting too many of the wrong type of fats from the animal products it's not balanced and so although you might get a quick fix of losing weight for a short term long term that does not sustain and therefore when you start to try and reintroduce certain foods from the different food groups again people often find that they their weight increases or they end up putting on more than what they were originally so really as dietitians as health professionals we'll always advise that you can't go wrong with thinking about general healthy eating principles and when we talk about that we talk about the eat well guide so Many people out there may have seen if they go into surgeries or health centres um, a plate food plate model, and basically that talks about the different food groups that are important to have in your diet. So these are like your carbohydrates, so your potatoes, your pasta, your bread, your rice, your cereals, your chapati. And again, with regards to these, it's important just thinking about healthy options, as I mentioned before, high fiber and good portion control. And about a third of your dietary intake over the day should be of carbohydrates. That is your energy source. What makes that unhealthy is maybe how you cook it. So, for instance, if you're putting butter on your bread, that is going to increase your calorie intake and it's going to increase your saturated fat. It's not going to be good for you, for your heart. However, if you put low-fat bread on that bread, then, of course, that's a healthier option. Similarly, if you're having potatoes, if you fry them, it's unhealthy. If you bake them, it's a healthier option. So this, uh, is, this is the difference just, with just how you think. What, sorry to interject, Ira. You mentioned butter, yeah. margarine. Please clarify the issue of ghee whereas a lot of people use it as an alternative some people yeah, say it's good some people say bad what's what's the what's the what's your um your take on that basically it's clarified butter so it, it is it isn't a healthy option it's just it's just basically butter again it's one of those things that we mentioned in the past that years ago or in our homeland of such a pakistan india wherever you know the asian subcontinent people may use ghee again because they may be more active they can get away with using that but generally um, the advice would be is to try and avoid using ghee and to go for a plant-based like um, olive oil um, or um, vegetable oil, rapeseed oil, they are healthier oil alternatives. But no matter what fat you use in cooking, it's important that you use a minimum quantity. So, you know, the, uh, you know, the general advice we would give is 
you know, try and avoid using ghee and to go for a, a healthier alternative, but always try and use, measure it, don't pour it, and just try and use um, a small quantity with regards to that. I think, see, the, the reason I asked the question of ghee, because so many people who, again, they go onto these fad diets, and, and I don't know, within the West, the notion of using ghee seems a bit more natural, and, and they think it's okay. I mean, I've even seen some um, social media um, you know, clips where people are encouraging, saying that it's actually healthy for you. And and when people hear these things, what they do is then they go overboard and they use too much of it. Yes. And and, and that's why I kind of wanted to kind of clarify this issue of ghee, that yes. irrespective of it being natural or not, it is butter. It is butter. And you, you're exactly right, yeah. It's just like saying honey or sugar. Yeah. So at the end of the day, honey is, is a natural form of sugar. It will still cause your blood glucose levels to rise. And you shouldn't, you know, so especially again, you have some times where people are, you know, again, attack diabetes, you'll think it's fine to have honey, but not to have sugar. It, it, it have the same impact. So again, you know, the, there are natural products that will still have that same impact. And I think that the important message is in moderation. So whatever you are choosing to have, if at the end of the day, it's personal choice. Mm. And some people feel that, you know, if they make a curry with anything else, it doesn't have the same taste to it. And I think it's getting used to a quiet taste and just trying to experiment a little bit to say, okay, we can use other oils and you can still make a lovely, tasty curry, you know, for, for your dinner. Um, but, you know, it is important that it is, at the end of the day, it is butter and it is very concentrated in calories and it would not be good for your heart if that's what you were using constantly in cooking. How important is intermittent fasting and is that recommended within within your profession? No, not really. I don't think, again, it's one of these uh, diets that are around there at the moment. I would not recommend that anybody does that without any medical supervision because, um, you know, it's not healthy. Of course, there are circumstances um, with, say, for instance, religious factors where sometimes, of course, we'll fast during Ramadan. So, you you know, it's a similar thing that you're fasting for a certain period and then you're eating. But for, for if you're thinking of it with regards to diet and weight loss, um, we wouldn't recommend it long term because then you there is a high chance that you will become deficient in certain nutrients. And as I said before, really, you need to have a balance. You need to have your carbohydrate. You need to have your fruit and vegetables. You need to have your protein and you need to have your low-fat dairy products. They're the four main food groups that should be incorporated within your daily intake in moderation finally how can people seek advice on from their registered health professionals and what type of support is available for them there's a lot of support out there now i suppose the easiest way is to maybe just contact and make contact with your own gp uh, practice nurse at your gp surgery and then they can refer on to the appropriate health professionals as i've said you know as registered dietitians um, you know, you can be referred to see as through the NHS. Also, you know, there's many dietitians that do freelance work, so you're able to sort of go. And it's important, maybe just check that they are registered. There's a lot of 
um, as you've said, social media sites out there where sometimes people have personal interests and therefore then they may be giving information. I think it's important that, you know, whenever you're seeking any sort of information this way, you ensure that they are medically registered. And there's a lot of help within the NHS as well as um, private freelance, you know, so it's about searching with regards to with regards to that as well. There's organisations like Diabetes UK, British Heart Foundation, you know, there's reputable organisations that you can access. There's exercise for life programmes on NHS. There's a lot of group structured education groups out there now that are appropriate for certain different conditions or general weight loss, weight management, healthy eating, diabetes, heart. So, you know, all of this, I think the best thing is if you could, you know, go to your local GP surgery and, and just see what's available in your locality. Wonderful. Tahra Bashir, thank you so much for taking time out and putting some substance on this topic for us. I wish you a fantastic day ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you very much. That was Tahra Bashir, who is a specialist registered dietitian and British uh, Dietetic Association spokesperson. Um, we have got uh, a question on our Instagram story. What's your favorite type of exercise? And uh, we've already received some uh, answers. Uh, and uh, we have got some responses from uh, um, Navira, who says uh, walking. Amdul Khanam says badminton, walking on incline on the treadmill, um, cross trainer. We have someone saying nowadays cycling. Uh, walking exercise. Uh, everyone uh, is uh, uh, seems like very active. Um, talking about active, let's go and talk to our next guest of the afternoon. We have with us brother Ali Khan, who is a keen amateur sports person. He has served as the in charge of health and fitness for Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association. That was some time ago. And currently serves as in charge of the health and fitness for Ahmadiyya Muslim Elders Association. Good afternoon, welcome. Assalamualaikum and peace be on you, brother Ali. Salam, peace be upon you. You're having a very, very healthy show today, I hear. Well, it's even more healthy now that we have you <laughs> online. <laughs> yeah, this, this, you know, are you counting this as part of your daily exercise? Oh, there you it. go. <laughs> Brother Imran has got some, some questions for you. Um, yeah, Ali Khan, um, uh, which sports do you think is the most um, effective sports in, um, in order to losing the weight? Wow, there's a question. Right in the, right in the, straight into the deep end, huh? Um, look, I, th- I think uh, what we um, just to take just to go back a step. Um, m- my role um, at the moment in the for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Elders Association. Um, it's important to understand a little bit more what the Ahmadiyya Muslim Elders Association is. Um, our, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is divided into auxiliary various auxiliary organisations, as our listeners may or may not know. Um, and for for men, we have the association, the youth association, which stops at 40. And then when you get to 40, you join the elder association. Now, you can imagine what a 40-year-old, uh, how a 40-year-old would feel suddenly being classified as an elder, having been classified... Tell me as, about it. ...as a member of the youth <laughs> association. You know? so for one, one minute, you belong to a youth association, and all of a sudden... Within the blink of an eye, you involve, you, you know, you become an elders association. And so, what 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 the elders association has have done is they've actually split the age category into two. So, for under 55s, there's a uh, separate category, and for the over 55s, there's a separate category. Now, my role within that for both age groups is to organise programmes, organise education, 
um, to encourage um, fitness, to encourage health, um, and, 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 and to come on to your question, to also um, organize sports. Now, there isn't one sport that's, that's uh, your optimum sport for someone to play. Um, everyone, uh, you know, everyone has their own preferences. Everyone has their own, uh, you know, your, your, you know, some people don't like running. They don't like running because, you know, um, it puts certain strain on, on, on your jo- joints. Some people prefer team sports because the only way they, they, you know, they love the camaraderie, they love the teamwork, they love the confrontational kind of battle element of it. Some people prefer individual sports. Um, some people prefer kind of more endurance sports. So I think the the most important thing is to find what works for you best and, and to kind of go back to what I was saying about my role. I think it's, it was really important, especially for men of South Asian descent, um, where culturally, um, you know... Um, Diabetes and, and heart, heart yeah, problems. I, yeah, I think it's really, really important for, for them to think that when you get to 40, that doesn't mean that you have to start becoming less active. And actually, you know, it can become um, our in our community. You know, we the Amdi Muslim Youth Association. We, you know, they're really busy. And when you get to forty and you join the Elders Association, there's a bit of a joke that, you know, you actually have more time on your hands because the volunteering work is not as demanding or as, or as strenuous. Well, what better time than to start looking after yourself more and doing more physical activity? Well. B- I mean, listening to what you've just said, Brother Ali, can you kind of emphasize also the importance of physical and mental fitness? Because I know we're talking about the physical side of it, but you are also responsible for from the mental health perspective from, from for the Youth and the Elders Association. So in Islam, both of these aspects of fitness are very important. Um, can you kind of elaborate on that for the benefit of our listener? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, look, the first thing to, to understand is is what is health, right? I mean, health is not the absence of disease or illness. Health is how you, leave, how you live. And I think that's the first people that, thing that people don't understand, right? Um, that all of, you know, just because, you know, being healthy is not being ill. But actually, being healthy is so much more than that. Um, the other thing is, is that a lot of people, and what I'm talking about here, Brother Kiyum, is, is, is in answering your question, is I'm talking about in holistic health. Mm. And certain, in the Amity Muslim Elders Association right now, we're trying to promote holistic health. Um, so the other thing is, is that especially people in our community, they just say, oh, genetics, is, it's, it's genetics to blame. It's not genetics to blame. There's a, there's a saying, um, uh, forgive me for not being able to quote it, you know, to, to, to quote it right now properly, but that genes load the gun, but it's the environment, i.e. the body, that pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, and, 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 you know, you talked about the, the, the um, mind and, and body being two separate facets. I mean, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping you guys probably got access to some quotes that you can educate the listeners on afterwards, but Islam actually talks about, it supports the idea and promotes the idea that the mind and body are actually linked and that you need to look after both in order to remain healthy. And, and essentially that's what holistic health um, is about. It's, it's holistic, it's a multi-dimensional, it's, it's encouraging you to live your life in a way that considers a multi-dimensional aspect 
the wellness that you have to recognize the whole person, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the social, the intellectual, the spiritual, all of these things are linked, right? And when we look at mental health, um, and we talk about mental health, you know, mental health, um, you, you can, you can, you can, you can do, you can do things physically that promote your mental health. You can do things socially that promote your mental health, and you can do things spiritually. And there again, you you can see there the link between the mental and the physical. That you know how one can influence the other. Right. So, um, Ali, um, over the years, what sort of campaigns and activities have you organised to encourage health and fitness? Okay. Well, I mean, look. At the moment, uh, um, over the years, you know, we, we've we've um, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association, in addition to promoting, uh, in addition to organising regular sporting events and leagues and competitions, um, we had an initiative called Fajr Fit. Mm-hmm. And the idea of Fajr Fit was not only to encourage um, young, uh, the young members of the Amni Muslim community to wake up early and pray and, and read the dawn prayer on time and to read it in congregation, possibly at the mosque, mm-hmm. because that's a there's no better way of starting. You talk about mental health. There's no better way of starting your day than waking up early and 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 um, praying. And then we've seen, we've seen even you know whether you believe in in, in in a creator or God or not. I mean, we've seen many people swear by a meditation as well, right? So we know that it, it works. Right. And waking up early has always been always been um, advocated as a healthy um, a healthy uh, endeavor. Uh, you know, a health a healthy practice. But also as a means of success, all of the most successful people that go and go on to give their TED talks and write their books, you know, they'll, they'll all say, "Yeah, I wake up at four or five a.m. I meditate and then I start my day." Mm-hmm. So we were, you know, we, we had a program that encouraged waking up and reading the dawn prayer, um, and then after that, encouraging people to get together, right. sense of community, sense of social, mm-hmm. um, that social interaction, and to exercise together first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Maybe go out on a run go on a bike ride, just do some um, kind of uh, circuit training right. um, together. And, and that, that, was, that was an initiative that we, that we did. Um, move fast, for, fast forward to, to present day in terms of what I'm doing as part of the Elders Association with my team. Um, it is very much what I spoke about at the beginning, about in, uh, introduction to holistic health. So encouraging um, people, for example, to simple, something sounds really simple, but just movement daily movement, making sure that you're stretching, making sure that you're improving your flexibility and your function, that you're preventing wear and tear on your joints, so you're preventing, preventing injury, and that you're putting yourself in better physical condition to be able to do more regular exercise and outdoor activity. We're, mm-hmm. we're advising people on how they can exercise and take part in outdoor activity. You can't just start exercise straight away. You need to build up to it, and we give advice on how to do that. We're encouraging the benefits of fasting. Benefit uh, fasting has religious, um, you know, religious uh, imperative in Islam. You know that, that it's it's a you know it's encouraged. You're encouraged to fast regularly. It was a, a practice of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But nowadays, you also have um, lots of experts advising intermittent fasting as a good mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. of. Of, of, of managing weight and, and, and being more healthy and, and actually preventing viruses, preventing inflammation in your body, helping control your blood sugar, strengthening your immune system, increasing the, increasing growth hormones, 
helping you lose weight. So we're, again, we're encouraging people to fast regularly mm-hmm. for spiritual reasons and religious reasons, but at the same time while making sure that they, um, that, that, that they understand the benefits of fasting wider. Um, and just finishing off quickly, encouraging people to sleep more. Okay. And understanding the importance of sleep, understanding people to eat more sensibly, and not just about what you eat, or, or, but how much you eat and when you eat, encouraging mm-hmm. people how to manage stress. And, and you know, you mentioned, um, this may answer one of your next questions, Brother Kuyum asked at the beginning about mental health. Um, you know, the biggest thing about mental health, especially in our community, is encouraging people to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. That it's not a taboo subject. And, and actually... In the number of people, you know, we get together on bike rides. Normally, we have a cycling club, and, and we go out, and you start talking to, you know, you start talking to the guy next to you on a bike ride, on a, on a bike ride, and um, and you'll be you'll be shocked at the number of guys who've just opened up about the fact that they have struggled with mental health in the past, mm-hmm. and just just that's something that is 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 not common. It's not it's not common amongst men to talk to each other like that, right. and it's not common in our community either. Mm-hmm. Encourage, you know, to encouraging that as well, and and that's essentially a summary of what we're trying to do, um, what we're trying to do in terms of campaigns and programs. Wonderful, brother Ali Khan. Thank you so much for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show this afternoon. I wish you a fantastic evening ahead. Peace be with you, brother. Thank you for having me. Assalamualaikum. Alaikum salam. And that was Ali Khan. The brother is a keen amateur sportsman. I know he's a keen cyclist, um, and he has uh, served as. Uh, um, the in charge of uh, health and fitness for the youth association, but he currently is also serving as in charge of health and fitness for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Elders Association. And <coughs> you know, it's um, he, he he did say, um, and and he p- pointed out that uh, you know there are um, loads of sayings and and teachings within the Holy Quran, um, and that uh, are, are kind of relevant. To mm-hmm. this topic, and in chapter two, verse one seven three, the Holy Quran states, "O you who believe, eat of the good things we have provided for you, and render thanks to Allah, if it is He whom you worship." Um, it is further stated in the chapter seven, verse thirty two, "O children of Adam, look to your adornment at every time and place of worship, and eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely He does not love those." Who exceed the bounds? This is, goes back to when we talked about, um, you know, moderation. We talked about everything doing in 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 the, um, you know, in the correct manner. Um, let's go to our final guest uh, of the afternoon. We have with us uh, Neil Shah. Neil Shah is the founder of uh, International Wellbeing Insights and chief um, de-stressing officer. Um, of the Stress Management Society, a leading international expert on stress management and well-being. He's the author of Amazon, number one bestseller, Turning Negatives into Positives, an introduction to neuralistic, neuro-linguistic programming and the 10-step stress. Good afternoon, welcome, assalamu alaikum, and peace be on you, and thank you for taking time out and coming on to the show, Neil. You're most welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking time out for us. Uh, so... Can you please tell us more about the current um, hashtag Choose Hope that the Stress Management Society is running? And what is this campaign about? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Um, You you know, we find ourselves in a very strange time where 
you know, every time you turn on the television, you watch the news, you pick up a newspaper or a magazine, you, you scroll through social media, we seem to be reminded of all the challenges in the world of death, doom, destruction, devastation, problems, challenges, war. Um, and, you know, if you are constantly exposed to messages of doom, gloom, and darkness, sadly, many people start to be programmed by that, and it starts to affect their perspectives, their views, how they see the world, and how they feel about the world around them. And sadly, because there's been so many challenges one after the other, it just feels like never-ending at the moment. Yeah, I was about, to say, I was about to say that. It's so difficult in, t in today's time that we're living in. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, 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 the concern for us is it's overwhelming. And you get to the point where after a while you start to lose hope, quite literally to lose hope. You stop seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And regardless of what your belief systems are, there's only so much we can take. Even the most strong and resilient and faithful of people will eventually start to, 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 to feel anxious and overwhelmed and start to lose kind of that sense of perspective and, and hope that things can get better. We want to change that narrative because we're sadly getting to the point where too many people are being lost in the darkness through mental health, through getting to the point where they just don't want to be here anymore. Mm. Today being World Mental Health Day, this is an important day to mark this occasion and an important point for us to officially launch our campaign. The theme for this year's mental health is to make mental health and well-being a global priority. Whereas even though that's the strapline for, 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 for World Mental Health Day, it seems like the priority for most you, you know, sort of, uh, media and social media outlets is, is to, to share stories of, of negativity, whether that's conscious or unconscious. And we can't wait for someone else to give us the, the, the positivity and, and, and the good news. You know, we've, 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 there is so much stigma, guilt and shame associated with talking about mental health. You know, we're seeing so many sort of violations, you know, human rights violations against people that have got mental health conditions or people that are having experiences where they want to improve their experience and they're, they're being, uh, you know, discriminated or even persecuted as a result of it. And this is really where we can't wait for someone else to take action. We all have a collective responsibility to create the world that we want to live in. And this is really where... What we have to bear in mind is no matter how dark things get, it only takes one spark of light and the darkness ceases to exist. Whose responsibility is to create that spark of light? Every single one of us. Mm. And how do we do that? To offer a counter-narrative to the stories of doom and gloom and to start offering stories of hope. Because if you base your belief on the world that we live in, on the information that we're exposed to, it's very easy to draw some negative conclusions. I don't agree that's the case. I think the world is a wonderful, beautiful place. I think there are amazing human beings out there that show love, compassion, empathy every single day that are working hard to make the world a better place. We just don't hear those stories. So the, 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 kind of the, the inspiration behind Choose Hope is for everyone else to take that responsibility to share stories of hope and potential because you don't know who needs to hear that story today, who needs to hear that things can get better, that there is light at the end of the tunnel and hope isn't just a pink and fluffy uh kind of you know left field concept when people have hope it gives us courage it gives us resilience it actually gives us the ability to take positive action let's kind of look at this from a scientific perspective data shows that people that have hope are happier healthier they live longer they're financially better off and they have you know more success in their careers why not because of what they believe, 
if you have hope your health can be better, you're more likely to get off the couch, to go out for a walk, to exercise, to go for a swim, to ride your bike, to eat healthy foods. If you have hope that your um, your financial situation or your career can get better, you're more likely to put in the effort to make positive steps to make things better. If you believe your relationship is going to be better, you're more likely to put more effort to try and communicate and bridge gaps between differences. And this is where hope translates from what I feel and what I believe about the world to what I'm willing to do and how I'm willing to show up. And this is really where we, we, we're starting to see some really compelling data to show that hope has the potential to, to literally transform our experience and the world that we live in because people are more likely to, to, to do things that create positive change. Mm -hmm. So, um, Anal, what advice would you give to people who are uh, currently struggling to sometime find hope? Well, firstly, it's that lack of motivation that, that, that we feel because we, we, we just get kind of lost in the problems. Now, there's a, the, the universal law of impermanence. This is a law of physics. This is not kind of a philosophical uh, perspective. This is actually a, a law of physics. Mm -hmm. Everything in this universe is temporary. Even the universe itself will eventually cease to exist. The, 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 the galaxy, the solar system, our sun, our planet will at some point die and something else will replace it. We are temporary. Mm -hmm. Everything is temporary. You could be having the most challenging, traumatic, difficult day of your life. It will end and a better one will follow. But equally, by the very same token, you could be having the most wonderful, beautiful, magical day of your life and it will also end and maybe a more challenging day will follow. Mm -hmm. If we get comfortable being like the, 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 you know, the, the water in the ocean, knowing that we move with the, the tide and the current, we know everything will change. So once we get comfortable with that, we can start to recognize actually no matter what I'm experiencing, where I am now, things will change. So how can we, rather than get lost in the story of the challenge, just start to look at how do we break things down into sizable chunks? How can we, re you know, uh, remain present to what's happening, good or bad, not get stuck in the, the, the concepts of craving the good things and aversion to the bad things. Maybe take things out of your mind, write them down on paper. Start sh being grateful for the small things you have. If you, you know, tonight, if you go to bed and you've had some food today, you've got a bed to sleep in, you've got a home, you've got people in your life that you care about, you have plenty of things to be grateful for. That in itself starts to reframe the things I don't have and the things that I'm not happy with with the things I am actually truly grateful for. And actually getting to the point where we start to hold value for the things that are truly important. There was once... Um, a wise mm -hmm. man that said, there's only three things a human being needs. Mm -hmm. That's food, shelter, and companionship. Everything right. else is a bonus. And this is really where, when, when we really understand that, you tread lightly on this earth. Mm -hmm. Rather than craving the, the material good and the superficial needs, it's just really being focused on the things that are most important. Right. So, uh, now many people um, take time out out in their lives to practice uh, practice physical well-being but how can people practice mental well-being in their daily lives too it's the same thing we tend to separate physical mental and emotional but they're all aspects of the same notion you have no 
physical well-being if you have no mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Why? When you're mentally and emotionally compromised, the choices that you make in your life are likely to have an impact on your physical well-being. Why? You're less likely to exercise, less likely to eat well. You're going to consume things that potentially are not going to give you kind of an, an improvement in your well-being. You may not sleep so well. You may not socialize. But equally, if your physical well-being is compromised, if you're ill or, or, or you have an injury or some kind of physical ailment, that has an impact on your mental and emotional state. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we should separate the two. We should look at well-being holistically. So it's not so much I'm practicing mental well-being or practicing physical well-being. It's I'm practicing, phys- uh, I'm practicing well-being full stop because these are all kind of different aspects of the same concept. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Neil Shah, thank you so much uh, for taking time out and coming on to... Uh, the Drive Time Show and putting some substance onto this topic that we are discussing this afternoon. I wish You're you a fantastic. I've, I wish you a fantastic evening, and an even better uh, one of the week ahead. Yeah, one of the things I was going to sort of finish with is we all have the opportunity to be a part of the solution, and that is every time you share a positive story, use the hashtag Choose Hope. You can find more information at ChooseHope.org.uk, where you'll be able to get some resources and understanding of why this is important and what you can do, how we can all be a part of the solution to create the world that we all want to live in. Wonderful. You just did that, sir. Thank you so much for taking time out this evening, this afternoon. I wish you a fantastic day ahead. Peace be on you, brother. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. That was Neil Shah, who is the founder of the International Wellbeing Insights and chief de-stressing officer of the Stress Management Society. Some fantastic points there, mind by Neil. Absolutely. Um, And we are coming up to the hour. So just to conclude, doctors have constantly placed a great emphasis on eating healthy and being physical being physically active on a regular basis, as these can greatly impact one's lifestyle and quality of life. Not only this, but Islam also encourages us on these things through the ideal ideal lives of the prophets and through the Holy Quran. In chapter 2, verse 169 of the Holy Quran, it states, O ye men, eat of what is lawful and good in the earth, and follow not the footsteps of Satan. Surely he is to you an open enemy. In summation of everything mentioned today, we should ensure that the information we receive online or from others is correct and factual before we choose to believe it and we should try our best to live healthy lives and encourage each other to do so as well today's program has been produced by Simul Inam, Nadia Shamas and Pravesh Huma, thank you to our brother in tech, brother Tahir thank you to Imran, thank you for listening to the, for, for listening, for listening for, for, for joining me today thank you to you mm-hmm. for, for listening please forgive any shortcomings on our part until next time please remember us in your prayers may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. The Enricher, the one who satisfies the needs of his creation. And if you fear poverty, Allah will enrich you out of his bounty, if he pleases. Surely, Allah is all-knowing, wise. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Ashhadu an la أشهد أن 